Now we have tonight in Romans chapter 8. And I have a feeling we're going to discuss some very interesting subjects. And we'll just let scripture say what it says. Go from there. Chapter 8 of Romans. We'll pick up in verse 18. Well, that's Corinthians, so that doesn't work. That's Romans. There's chapter 8. Okay. <laughs> Paul continuing about what he has talked about um, in, in previously, you know, and I think we talked about last week about, you know, we're adopted into the sonship, you know, we call God Abba Father. Uh, the Spirit, Holy Spirit testifies with our spirit. We are children of God. And then in verse 18, he says, For I consider, and remember, he's, people are he's dealing with suffering in part. When Paul writes, for the most part, by the time you start getting the epistles, there's always suffering in the background. For I consider that the suffering of this present time, those sufferings are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be real to us. So in other words, what we suffer, and he's talking about sufferings because of Christ. What we may suffer as a follower of Jesus, however involved they may be, whatever the depth they may be, they're not even worth comparing to the glory that we will receive uh, when we, of course, are with Christ. Now, the concept of glory becomes pretty prevalent here. And glory um, comes from a concept of brightness, uh, it comes from the idea of revealing. The glory of God is the manifestation or the revealing of his holiness. We experience an encounter that God is holy through his glory. When we speak of glory for us uh, in human situation, <coughs> and, and in, the, in an earthly perspective, you know, if someone wins a game and they get glory, it's honor and prestige. But from a spiritual perspective, glory is that time when our salvation is ultimately consummated in heaven, uh, in the kingdom of God, when Jesus is fully revealed as Lord of all lords and all of the created earth, all of creation, period, glorifies and honors him. That glory then is being uh, the, the consummation of that salvation. So we experience the totality of what it means to have, be a follower of Christ. Heaven is not just a place where we will spend eternity. Heaven is a condition of glorification. We will celebrate in the glory of God by experiencing the glory he has for us. That ultimate fulfillment of all uh, that, that, that it means to be a follower of Christ. I'm um, reading in Revelation right now. And uh, not because I'm going to teach it. I'm just reading it. Uh, so nobody get your hopes up. And uh, one of the things that, that always strikes me about the book, uh, and I always try to place myself what it was like in uh, 95 or so AD to live in um, Asia Minor, Turkey, to be a persecuted Christian when John wrote that book, is that sense that regardless of the persecution, all seven of those churches that he wrote to are experiencing persecution, that what lies down the road for, for them is glory. That no matter how much they suffer, in the end, there is victory. I don't really care what your view of Revelation is at this point. I'm just telling you, the book of Revelation is about this unbelievable victory that we have. And Paul says the same thing here. So when you suffer, how often do we count our sufferings? How often do we think of all the things that happened to us, even as a follower of Jesus? You shouldn't even... Think about those things when you realize that in comparison to glory, they amount to nothing. Now, I will say this. When you're going through the sufferings, they still, they still hurt, right? I still got that. But it's an encouragement to us to realize there's something beyond that. For the anxious longing, and notice he talks about, of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. Now, he's bringing creation into it. Remember, at the fall of Adam and Eve, creation fell as well. When people talk today about some of the natural disasters and calamities that, that happen, it's part of the fallen process of creation. When man sinned, nature fell as well. If you read carefully through scriptures, you understand that at the consummation of all things, when the glory of God is fully established in Christ, there will be, in essence, a, a renewing a rebirth of all creation. So we read about a new heaven, about a new earth. There, you know, people sometimes, I think, get the idea that 
uh, heaven will be somewhere up in the sky. If you really read scripture carefully, this earth is going to be transformed into what it should be. And heaven will, from you read scripture carefully, will be on earth. That will experience all in the second coming of Christ. All that is supposed to be with the new heaven and new earth. All of that will enjoy the full benefit. So here he's saying that creation is anxiously longing for the sons of God to be revealed, for that glory to occur. For the creation, it says in verse 20, was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will also be set free from its slavery to corruption and to the freedom of the glory of the children of God. So even all of created order will be set right and be set right with those who experienced the glory of the children of God. Verse 22 says, For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. So, you know, every talks about the pains of childbirth. Of course, this is something only, only women can truly understand. I get that. But it is, uh, from what I've been told, an unbelievably intense pain. And the thing about it is, is so it, it kind of typifies the pain and suffering. It is a way of expressing uh, that there is some... Beauty, obviously. Obviously, there's beauty in childbirth, but there is pain as well. And so in, in, in the world that we have, uh, the creation suffers the pains of childbirth to canal altogether. Then verse 23 says, But not only this, but we ourselves, having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as Son, the redemption of our body. So we suffer and we groan and we long for the new birth. We long, we, we, we long for that time when we will no longer have to experience that suffering, but things will be transformed. I, I have noticed uh, in my uh, years of ministry, uh, as, as people get closer uh, to that time when uh, death will come, they, they long for it. And I've always found, why, you know, why are you longing for that? And because they experience a sense of relief and release from what will happen. I'll never forget, I've told this story before, I think, but uh, in Laredo, I had an unbelievable lady named Minnie Mae McCaskill. Her father was a missionary. He was the first missionary, I think it was in Sonora, uh, a Baptist missionary. And it, unbelievable story, but uh, she was the last of 10 girls. And uh, she was really sick one day, and I was in the hospital to visit her. And she looked at me, and she grabbed me, and she said, I'm tired of living. I want you to pray that I die. And I said, Minnie, I, I, I really don't know that. She grabbed me and said, you pray that I die. I said, yes, ma'am. I'll, I'll pray that God's will will be done. <laughs> and then the next, about three or four days later, I visited her again. And she was doing better. I said, how are you doing? She goes, I had a dream that God was not finished with me. So you quit praying for me to die and start praying that I might live. So yeah. I said, yes, ma'am, I'll, I'll pretty much pray for whatever you tell me to. So that, but, you know, I've seen that before, a sense of readiness. Right? And, I, and I think within us is the understanding that there, if, you, if you're a follower of Christ, that there's more to this life. And though I want to keep this life and enjoy it, and it bothers me that life... The older I get, things pass by really fast. For some of you, I guess the years are passing by like seconds right now. But, you know, it passes by so fast that I'm like, hang on a little bit. I'm not ready for all that. But within me, there is the knowledge that I am I'm anticipating that time. We've been adopted. And because we're adopted as sons, then there's the entire redemption of who we are. He talked about in verse 23 that we have the first fruits of the Spirit. That the idea of the first fruits is the idea of the first cut. It's, it's the best. So we have the absolute best of the Spirit within us. Verse 24 says, in hope we have been saved. But hope that is, uh, that is, not, but hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he's already seen? So in other words, we have hope. But for not what we've seen, we have hope that something's beyond there. We hope for what we do not see. With perseverance, we eagerly wait for it. So what we're hoping for, and hope is not wishful thinking. True hope can only be experienced by the follower of Christ. What most people call hope is wishing. What I call hope is consummation. It's the finalization of what I know will come true. 
Uh, if you use the metaphor of adoption, when we adopted Kelly, uh, she's placed in her home. Once they're placed in your home, they really can't. There's all these horror stories of taking your children away when you're adopting until they're finalized. In Texas, they don't do that. I mean, you got it's, it's a major court battle. When the years are yours, but there is a court date at that time, six months down the line, where everything is finalized. And so, you know, we knew that day was coming, but we eagerly waited for it because then it was final, final. You know, there's just there's no question. Uh, and and that's kind of the experience that you talk about. We know that time is coming. Our hope is in the finalization of all things. Uh, Sometimes, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll think about um, what that time will be like. And one of the things that I look forward to in eternity is, uh, <laughs> it sounds silly to you, but it makes perfectly sense to me, is to be able to explore all of creation that God has made and to see it in its natural beauty. I've been to some beautiful things. I've been to Niagara Falls. I've been to uh, the Grand Canyon. Uh, you know, all, all those things. And some of you have traveled far more than I have. But the understanding that for eternity we will be able to enjoy all of what God created. And I'll be able to enjoy it uh, with, with, with Debbie for all eternity. And so I, you know, I, I think there's anticipation. I look forward to be able to worship God in full, of knowing all that I can know about God, of having... I don't know if my questions will be answered because I don't know if the questions matter anymore. But I, I look forward to just the experience of a, of a life without sin in the presence of the creator of all things. Enjoying all that he has created with other people who have served him. So there's that anticipation of the full benefit of what that will be. Well, now you come to verse 26. And it says, in the same way. The Holy Spirit, the Spirit, helps us in our weakness. For right now, in this life, we don't know how to pray as we should. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is. Because he intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Understanding in light of the fact that you're suffering, and life is difficult in this earth. You may hope for that, but you've got to deal with this, right? You can hope, you can long for the coming. But you're dealing with your reality. And we live in weakness, and sometimes we really don't know how to pray. And, uh, and so what happens is we need to recognize that the Spirit intercedes for us. And, and there's two intercessions mentioned in Scripture. The, Christ intercedes for us in terms of our salvation. As the Father of Christ, it's the Holy Spirit that intercedes. And the idea of interceding is to be the go-between. And the picture here just isn't just of my normal daily prayer life, the Holy Spirit taking my prayers to God. It is when I am so overcome in the midst of difficulty, and I don't even know what to say. In my groanings, the Holy Spirit takes those groanings, and he brings them to the Father and intercedes on our behalf. Now, doesn't the Father know this anyway? Well, of course. But one of the great teachings of Scripture is that the Trinitarian nature of a relationship with God, Father, Son, and Spirit. The Son dies for us and saves us, but the Holy Spirit dwells within us. And (laughs) there are some people in life that pray uh, to saints or angels, God bless them. I just want to pray to God. And in praying to God, I want to know that it's God who deals with all of that. I don't like... I, I never like middlemen. I don't, I don't like dealing with the middle. If there's an issue, I want to go as high up as I can to deal with the issue. And when it comes to God, I, I want to know that I'm dealing with God, and the Holy Spirit is God. And so all the beliefs and doctrines and theologies that somehow have a middleman in there, understanding Scripture doesn't teach us there's a middleman, we just make that stuff up. The intercessors for us, God the Son, God the Spirit. And when you don't know what else to pray for, sometimes, and I've been, I've been there, all I could do is just bow before God in my emotional state, and I knew the Holy Spirit was taking what I was going through to the Father, and He was translating that for me. That's a pretty good place to be when you're suffering, to know that the one who is handling it is the Spirit of God. And so I think that's pretty cool. And Paul says that. And we understand that. He searches the hearts. 
And he knows the mind of what this mind of the Spirit is. He searches the hearts. And he knows. Well, in light of that, then, comes one of the more famous passages of Scripture in Romans. One of the better known verses. It is used out of context all the time. Probably there are a few verses in Scripture that are taken out of context more than Romans 8.28. So we're going to go through 8.28, 29, and 30 and talk about all sorts of fun things in the book of Romans. But in the midst of all this, Paul makes, in the midst, remember, he's talking to people who were persecuted, who were suffering. He's writing to people in Rome. Nero is emperor. Uh, Excuse me, not, not yet. I'm sorry, you don't know, I don't think. But he's writing to people in Rome uh, in the middle of the 50s. Uh, eventually, Nero will become emperor and will begin a persecution of the Christians. At this time, things in Rome are starting to get rough. It's not primarily the Romans. It is primarily the Jews that are causing trouble. But there has been some difficulty for several years. And so you don't have to be extremely intelligent to realize where this is all heading. And so Paul, in the midst of difficulties, knows the things that are going on. Uh, To a church he's never visited gives a a really great statement of dealing with life. We know that God causes, causes all things to work together for good. For those who love God and those who are called according to his purpose. And notice the emphasis is on God, not us. And it says we can know something. The idea of knowing is to have absolute certain certainty. It is the concept of knowledge as being experiential knowledge, not necessarily content knowledge. And it says that God then causes. Some manuscripts read that he that all things work together for good. Yet to be, you know, normally said, you know. We know that all things work together for good. It makes it sound like all things are out there just working themselves out. That's more of the concept of fate or destiny. The correct understanding and the correct from the manuscript's evidence is that God is the cause. So God brings things. And he says they work together. The term work together is the Greek word basically synergy. Comes from the word energo, synergo is the word. Sin, S-Y-N, is with Erica was work, so there's a working with, this idea of synergy, of incorporating. And so what he's saying is, the different things in your life are used by God to bring about a purpose that ultimately is beneficial. That is good, and, and the idea of good is not so much good as opposed to bad, but good from the, the quantitative, the moral quantitative, uh, qualitative standpoint, the quality of it. And so what we need to realize this does not mean that you know, if I were to fall off the stage and break my arm, that I'm to think, well, good, God can use that for something good. If I fall off the stage and break my arm, you're going to find a side of me that you didn't probably know was there before, and that won't be good. And it's going to hurt, and that won't be good. And, and there are a lot of things. But what it says, it's not, it's not being trivial about this when bad things happen. It's in the course of life, we come across obstacles, setbacks, difficulties, failures. We can have confidence that God is working in our life to take that which is sometimes meant to be harmful, meant to be bad, meant to be debilitating, meant to hurt us. He'll take those and he'll transform those according to his purpose for what is best for us. Well, at least for those who are called according to his purpose. I hear people say all the time, God works, everything works together for good. No, they don't. Not for everybody. I hear people all the time who are followers of Christ quote this passage. This passage does not apply to you. If you're not a follower of Jesus, ain't going to happen. In the end, all things work together for bad. If you're not a follower of Jesus, you're going to spend eternity in hell. I got news. Everything's working together. It ain't good. It says for those who were called, and the idea of calling, kaleo, who were, who were called out, to his purpose. And the idea then is who are working through his purpose. So people who are committed to the cause of Christ, the cause of God. Through the balance of our lives, the things that happen in our life. Because we're heading for that ultimate hope, that consummation in Christ. 
All things God are going to take, and He's going to work through those things for our betterment, for our benefit. Because in doing that, it's going to work to bring glory and honor to Him. So I look at my life and see a, a lot of things that happen. Uh, and I wish they hadn't. And today I know that I am a better Christian, husband, father, pastor, because of those things. I look at certain elements of my character, certain elements of my ministry, and I know that is the result of having gone through things that I wish I hadn't gone through. God took those, and he worked them as I fulfill his calling. That's encouragement. Now, at the time you're going through it, I don't know how much comfort that is. I don't, when someone's going through difficulty, I don't often say, hey, all things are going to work for good for those who love God and call it according to his purpose. I don't, I don't say, I don't usually tell them that. I'm trying to help them get through a difficult time. And I'm trying to bring comfort to them. Later on, when we talk about it, I might say, how is God using this in your life? How is he working through all this to help you? Sometimes when people are going through difficult times, I just need to let them go through that difficult times and just be with them and try to quit making it all better. I learned a long time ago, sometimes I just need to, I just need to go through it with them and, when it, and, and be there, and I'll give the advice I need to give. I'll pray for them. At the end, I can help them go through all that, but when they're going through it, I don't, I don't really know that I can help them understand it while they're going through it. I just need to be there to support, help them, love them, pray for them, and show them somehow the presence of God. I have found as a pastor that that works really well for me. Twenty-nine. Now, twenty-nine and thirty are taken out of context because it talks about predestination. Remember, he's talking about being glorified. The end of verse 30, he says, he glorified. That is, it's building up to something. He's glorifying. He's, it's that consummation we talked about. So he says this to those who work together, those going through difficult times. Talking to those going through difficult times now. For those he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And those he predestined, he called. And those he called... He justified, and those he justified, he glorified. The word foreknew comes from the word to diagnose beforehand, to prognosis, to know beforehand. And it speaks of the foreknowledge of God of all things. People ask me, does God know all things? Yes, certainly. Does he know things that haven't happened yet? Absolutely. He knows everything. From the moment he decided to create this universe, this world, he knew everything that was going to happen. He has that kind of knowledge. Do I understand it? No, he just has it. If you don't believe he has it, you've got a lot of problems. And there's plenty of people within Christianity that believe God doesn't know all things. There's something called open uh, theism, which denies his ability to know all things. You, the problem with that is you have all these passages that says he does, including this one. So the word for knows means to have absolute knowledge of. Not and every time someone tries to use illustrations, they almost always fall short. It is the perfect knowledge of what has not come. And God, knowing what is to come, it is certain that it will happen. He foreknows something or someone. And one, those he foreknow, those people that he foreknew, he, in addition to that, then predestined them to be conformed to the image of his son. Now, you're talking about the image of Christ, the likeness of Christ, who Christ is, his character. That confirmation comes from a word morphous, to morph, to be formed into the image of his son. So basically, he is saying, those who are going to ultimately be glorified, God has predestined them to be conformed to the image and character of Christ. So we have the concept of predestination. By the way, let me just say, the best place to talk about predestination uh, about you know salvation being predestined is in is Ephesians chapter 1 that's the best place um, Acts 4 20 hey uh, Peter's pretty emphatic that God predestined things to happen good and bad uh, Peter said that and so we come and a lot of people struggle with predestination 
um, in the idea that God determines what's going to happen, who's going to be saved. Now, I, I've never really struggled with it. It's pretty clearly taught in the Bible. Um, what we need to come to understand is that two things are taught in Scripture that are in harmony with each other. One is that we are responsible for our sins and our decisions. We have freedom that God has given us, and we have taken that freedom, and we have used it to rebel against God. The other thing, in light of that, because we have rebelled against God, Scripture says we're dead in our sins. In um, January, I'm preaching about faith, January, February, and I'm going to preach a message where in the book of Ephesians. It talks about we're dead in our trespasses and sins. We're dead. You know what dead people do? Let me tell you what dead people do. Nothing. Because they're dead. We spiritually are dead. You know what we can do spiritually? Nothing. And unless God does it, we can do nothing. There is no place in Scripture that ever says that spiritually dead people can generate faith. Just can't. In fact, in Ephesians 2, it says, For by grace are you saved through faith. It is the gift of God. Grace and faith are the it. What is the gift of God? Grace and faith. God gives us both those. Are we still responsible? Certainly. And what we need to realize and kind of understand in all of this is that when we talk about to be determined ahead of time, some people, and Baptists were really good at this, we're saying, well, God predestined those who will come to Christ. So if you have faith in Jesus, he predestines you to be saved. Scripture just never teaches that. I was in a, when I was in Bridgeport, we had a, a, a couple come join our church at one point, uh, and uh, he, they were really old, and uh, not to that matter. But, I mean, he'd been around. He was a knowledgeable guy, but he had been a former music minister. Uh, nothing against former music ministers or current music ministers, but you know, these guys, it's not an offense to you two guys back there uh, by any stretch of the imagination, but he had some really weird stuff he was going through, I think. And when I was talking about this, they really got upset with me. In fact, they ended up leaving the church because of this. And, and my comment simply to them was, nowhere in Scripture does it say that God chooses those who choose Christ. If that's the case, then we determine our salvation. If God is waiting to see who's going to choose Jesus, then salvation is out of his control. And we determine our salvation. You're in a big heap of trouble because Scripture says we can't do that. Now, here's the thing. The great minds of Christian history, and there have been numerous battles fought over the concept of what we would call predestination election. And ultimately, and every time, though with up, the upholding of the concept of election was recognized and went out. Um, the great, great theologian Augustine totally believed in predestination. Martin Luther, John Calvin, um, Melanchthon, Philip Melanchthon, Ulrich Zwingli, um, John Knox, all the great reformers totally held to this. In fact, very few people in Christian history, and I shouldn't say that, for most of Christian history, it has been understood that we, while we may not totally grasp it, that's, that's what Scripture teaches. It is not for the purpose of, of the lost. I don't go up to someone who doesn't know Jesus and say, you've either been predestined or not. It's really not up to you. I never do that. This is for us who are followers of Christ. As a follower of Christ, I know that God has chosen me to be saved. It keeps me humble and thankful. And I know that's true because here's what I know about me. If it was up to me, I would have never chosen God. And you wouldn't have either because we're sinners rebelling against God. You would have never chosen God. If God hadn't chosen you. Now, do you respond in faith? Yes. And every, every Sunday I preach and I offer invitations. And sometimes I'll say, I know I didn't preach an evangelistic message, but if the Lord is working in your life and you want to give your life to Christ, he wants you to do that. I don't say, I know I didn't give an invitation, but hey, if you decided today's the day, you're just going to come to Jesus. I don't say that. God's working in your life. And, sometimes, and I always offer it. I, don't, I, I always offer invitations. I'm one of the most evangelistic pastors I know. I still I offer invitation every week. You know, I, I, you know, I always will. We discuss sometimes. You think we keep offering invitation? I'm like, yeah, I worked on that sermon hard. I'm going to invite people to respond. Because I don't know what's going to happen in their life. God 
is in total control of creation. You and I aren't. We have freedom to reject God. When he gives us faith, in freedom we take that faith and he saves us. But you you need to be very, very careful. If you get to any position where you are responsible for your salvation. Because you, my friend, are disagreeing with God. And there simply is no scripture. Not even whosoever will may come. Not even that one. Supports that position. Those he predestined, look what he did. He called. Called them. Those he called, he justified. We already talked about justification. We are justified. We are declared right. How are we declared right? For anything that we didn't know. We've already said we can't be declared right. Only God can declare us right in Christ. And those he declared right, justified, he glorified. And notice it's interesting. Glorification is not yet to happen. He speaks of glorification as it's already occurred. It is a done deal. Isn't that great? Here's the thing. Because I know God saved me, I don't ever worry about losing my salvation. Don't ever do that. You know, people, you know the groups that worry about losing their salvation are the groups who believe that they save themselves. I don't God saved me. It's pretty good. Now, think about this. How often do you and I pray for someone we love that God will save them. God, they're in sin. They're denying you. God, break into their life. And I don't care how you do it. God, you just save them. Are we ask, we're, not asking, we're not saying, God, give them a choice. And encourage them to make the right. Well, God, save them. Don't we all pray that? I mean, I do. I don't even think about it. I just say, God, save them. How many times have I gone to the Father and said, thank you, God, for saving me? Because I don't deserve it. You ever been in that place where you realize you didn't deserve to be saved? And God saved you? He said, just thank you, Jesus. Because if it was up to me, I'd be going to hell. You know the interesting thing that I found? That all true followers of Christ, whether they admit it or not, believe they can't save themselves. And the great evidence of that in my life is the assurance that I've already been saved. Because here's the thing. If I can make the decision to save me, I can make the decision to unsave me. But I know I'm going to be... I'm all, I, listen, I already know glory waits. I'm glorified now. You may find that hard to believe, but as I stand before you, I'm glorified right now. You're seeing me in all my glory. <laughs> it's a done deal in the eyes of God. And I don't know about you, but I'm thankful I don't have to worry about it. Jesus said this, my sheep listen to my voice. I know them, and they follow me. He said, no one, as you said, by they by no means be perished. perished. They can never perish. They can never be destroyed. No one can snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who is greater than all, has given them to me. And no one can snatch them from the Father's hand. No one can ever snatch the sheep of Jesus from the Father's hand. And then he says, I and the Father are one, and they wanted to kill him for that. He says, they know me. They'll never perish, and they'll never be snatched away, because no one can take away what the Father has done. So I don't know about you. I don't always try to work out. I have freedom. I believe in freedom. I don't use the term free will. I believe in freedom and all that stuff. I don't. Someone asked Spurgeon, how do you reconcile freedom and free will and predestination? He said, I don't ever have to reconcile old friends. Sometimes I just say, God, you know, I don't always fully understand it. I understand it better than most. I realize that. I'll just say, okay, God, I'm good. Here's what I know. I'm saved. I'm not going to worry about what, how much part I had in it. <laughs> I, had every, I, had full, I was fully involved in my lostness. I don't need to be. I, I, I don't care whether or not I was involved in my being saved. I really don't care. He saved me. That's enough. Questions you may have, and I will do my best to answer however that may be. Yes, ma'am. Um. 
likewise the Spirit also helps our infirmities, for we know not what we should pray for as we ought. But the Spirit itself makes intercessions for us with groanings, mm -hmm. which cannot be uttered. And he that searches the heart knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because he makes intercession for the saints according to the will of God. Yes. So the Spirit, and I had a real meaningful, without getting into it, I had a real meaningful incident in my life when I was sick for about 30 years. Okay? And God brought me to this. Mm -hmm. And these verses, he prays according, or he intercedes according to the will of God. Correct. He won't intercede according to my will or to my prayers <coughs> that I wanted because I wanted healing and I wanted to be, you know, but even he, this gave me, actually this whole section gave me purpose to the suffering. But it's according, you know, many of us want prayer according to our own will. Yeah, and here's a second now. Verse 27, it says, according to the will of God, the phrase the will of is in italics. Correct? It's not in the Greek. It says according to God. So here's the thing. He intercedes for the saints according to God. In other words, this is what God has determined. So according to the will of God has to do with that it is God's will for him to intercede. Okay. Here's what, this, here's what the sentence says. Because he intercedes for the saints according to God. So it is God who has determined God, God, in the Spirit is God, that he intercedes for the saints. So he's not necessarily interceding for the will of God to be done, because the, for the will is not in there. That's in italics. He's interceding on behalf of God to God for us. Now, what you said about, about he works to the will of God is true. That's an understood. But that's not what that verse is saying. What that verse is saying is he searches the hearts, knows what the mind of the Spirit is. God does. God searches the hearts of us. He knows what the mind of the Spirit is because he, that is the Spirit, intercedes for the saints according to God. God has called the Spirit to intercede for the saints back to him. That is what is happening. It's, it's the, the term the will of is not in there. So it's not talking about that he's interceding to accomplish God's will and not ours. It's saying that he's interceding because this is what God has determined. Now, it is true that God gives us his will and not ours, because there's a lot of scriptural places to say that. So what you said is true. But whenever you see things in italics or bracketed and all that, check the notes, sometimes that is the translators smoothing that out. And sometimes they don't smooth it out as well as they should because it can cause some degree of confusion. It's on tape. You can go online and download it, and it'll be there, and it'll be in my latest book for $29.95. But. That's good. What else? Yes, sir. Well, they're not past tense. The Greek, it's not Greek, they're not past tense. It's, it's punctiliar. It speaks about a point that has occurred. So it's talking about, for a believer, these things have occurred. So you have, you have been, God foreknew you. God predestined you. He calls you, he justifies you. And even though it has not yet occurred, he has glorified you. So it speaks of a determined event that has occurred. Does that make sense? So whatever he is speaking of has already occurred. It's already guaranteed. It's already done. So if it's already guaranteed, why are we going to go out and evangelize if it's already predetermined? What did Jesus say to do? Go out and make disciples. Okay, there you go. Why wouldn't you? Do you know who's saved? Okay, what does Scripture say about that? Scripture says, For by grace are you saved through 
faith. So how are people going to have faith? Well, the Holy Spirit's going to work in life. He's going to show them. Look at what chapter 10 says. Chapter 10. Scripture 10, verse 11. Verse, verse 14. How will they call on him in whom they have not believed? How will they believe in him who they have not heard? How will they hear without a preacher? How will they preach unless they are sent? How it is just as written, how beautiful the feet of those who bring good news of good things. So he says, you got to go. Part of the predestination of God is us going. Part of God visiting them with grace is by sending us to do it. That is part of his process. It's not God sitting back there and saying, you're saved, you're saved, you're saved, enough done. It is God who works all things together for good, saying, I am going to save him, and you're going to go and share the gospel with him. Because our task in life is to be obedient to the Son, to the Father, to the Son. So the Son says, go make disciples. We go make disciples. As the Father hath sent me, so sent I you. You will be my witnesses in all these places. So we, in the sovereignty of God, as evidence of our faith, do what God has called us to do. And because I am a follower of Christ, and he's lost, I want him to be saved, and I'm going to go share the gospel with him. Because election is for me, not for him. It humbles me. So he's lost. I'm just picking on you. I know you're not really lost, but, you know. And so I'm, I'm, I'm going because I love him. I'm going because I care about him. I'm going because I'm praying and interceding that he become a follower of Christ. And when he does, I rejoice with him and I celebrate. We don't know who's saved. I have no idea. I don't even know for sure. I only know I'm saved. I really don't know about the rest of you. I know about me. And so, you know, we, we, we have to be careful that we don't overthink according to what makes sense to us. And we impose our logic on God. Because God says, he's totally sovereign. You, think about Israel. God chose Israel. And he said, you go and do the things I called you to do. And they didn't do it. And he punished them. We are called to be obedient to God. And we are called to serve. And I'll say this. One of the great joys of my life is the sharing of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And if I don't share the gospel of Jesus Christ, not only am I disobedient, I am missing one of the great joys of life. And so a sovereign God moves us to do that. So it's not either or. People still have freedom. It's, this, is the, this is what it means to be a follower of Jesus. I honor God. I follow Christ. I proclaim him as Lord. If I'm going to proclaim Jesus as Lord in my life, it is natural that I will proclaim him as Lord to those who are not believers. That is the natural response. It's in my DNA. I'm going to tell lost people. I'm going to tell everybody about my Jesus, my Lord. I'm going to tell the lost for sure. Does that help? Helps me. I mean, it's just... You, you, you can't, if you aren't careful, your question, indi- not, you're not thinking this way, it indicates that it is up to us. If I don't go to him and tell him he'll never be saved, and if he doesn't respond to, to Christ, he'll never be saved. And I need to understand, I'm going to him because God works in my life, and I'm obedient to God, and I'm obedient to the Father by the Holy Spirit. You want to say something? I see your hand. You want to raise it. Just raise it, man. God, God uses his spirit, his word, and his people to draw people to the right. You read that in the book, didn't you? No, you made that up? Yeah, you did. Yeah, yeah, he's right. God draws his spirit, his word, and his people. So all of that is part of that process. Yes, ma'am. So if some are predestined, then is that to say God creates? <laughs> you know our code. Yeah, I'm to say God creates people that aren't? That's the... Yeah, you're... you're, you're Getting the double predestination. Okay. Not necessarily taught in Scripture, by the way. All of us are condemned because of sin. That's the choice we made. I chose to sin. God didn't choose for me to sin. God didn't say, David, here's what I want. I want you to sin and go to hell. God created me to have a relationship with him. Now, in giving me freedom... Once there's, there came an age, I don't know when it was, 
that I rebelled against God knowingly of my own choosing. I chose to do that. So I have, I, so I have no issue. I have, I have, let me put it to you this way. If three people are, are facing the death penalty and they did what they said they did, there's no question they did it. And they're guilty. There's all the evidence in the world. And the governor decides to pardon one of them. The two who are still going to the death penalty have no complaint. They get what they deserve. By grace, the governor pardoned the one. Now, I want to be careful with that analogy. There's a lot of flaws with it. What I want us to see is everybody deserves hell. In his graciousness, God has chosen me to not receive what I deserve. I still had to respond in faith. Don't ever take the faith out of me. It's not robotic. I still respond in faith, but I rejected God in my life. Until grace, faith came along, and he offered me that faith, and I took it. Now, some will do double predestination, because it's a logical outcome. But then again, you're using human logic. And whenever you use human logic, you're in trouble. I mean, you're in trouble. (laughs) You're not in trouble using human logic. You're using trouble when you kind of place it on God. The scriptures just simply tell me we're all deserving hell. I, in my life, gave my life to Christ. When I was nine, 57, 57 year old David understands that I gave my life to Christ because of what God did in my life. It wasn't because of me. And, I, and that's where I let it ride. I don't, I don't try to work it out too much because then I start falling into some places that lead me to heresy if I'm not careful. But I understand what you're saying. It's a real issue. But better, better with a sovereign God to deal with the concept of him condemning some to hell than to have the idea that I save myself. Because that is clearly not taught in Scripture. It just makes me think, though, that why did he choose to save me? Grace. Grace. You're a wonderful person. Uh, that's the whole point. There is no reason... There is no reason except grace. So I tell you. He, ha- he has a reason. And in heaven, you can ask him that reason. He always has a reason not to save. Yes. But like your death row analogy, how do you pick that one? One of the things you're, you're putting down on God in reality, we, through our sin, predestined ourselves to hell. Yeah. We, we made that choice. So God in his grace is intervening in the lives of a multitude of people. Or we would all be predestined because of our sin choice to hell. The wages of sin is death. So so God is intervening on our poor choice with our free will. Does that make sense? The issue is why does he intervene on someone else? Yeah. And that is a question that um, Chris Christofferson voiced so well in the song, Why Me, Lord? Um, And the answer is grace. It's just grace. And I don't know where to put it. But here's what I know. To thank him for that, I'm going to spend my life worshiping him. And I'm going to spend my life telling other people about Jesus. I don't care. I don't care about working out the doctrine of predestination in their life. I'm going to share Jesus with everybody I can. So they can come to Christ. So they can experience grace. What else? Yes, sir. Well, the uh, prophet Jeremiah, God told him very important that he was, uh, he knew him in the womb. Yes. And he set apart, yes. apparently, in the womb. Yes. Now, the question, when you and your wife, was that, uh, did God have you two set apart at some point in time to get together? Me and my wife? Evidently she thought so because I ended up marrying her, I guess. Um, Jeremiah, when he talks about God setting him, foreknew him, Jeremiah is talking about his call experience and the fact that, um, that he was before birth set apart for that. Let me, let me just say, the, the doctrine of predestination, 
never interferes with the doctrine of will and choosing. My wife and I chose to marry each other. Uh, you know, um, put it aside, love at first sight, you know, God led us and all that stuff. Let me, let, me, let me give you another example. I know plenty of churches who have called pastors, and that was a disaster. And you look back and say, well, why did, you know, you, everybody thought it was their, God's will to call that pastor, and, and something happened, it was a disaster, and it didn't work out. What, were they wrong? And the answer could have been, yeah, they could have been. Because in our freedom, we may have made some bad decisions. Um, we have to be careful that we don't come up with the pagan concept of fate. That everything is fated. Go back to what Paul says. All things will work. God works out for good. So even the bad decisions I've made. Does God know everything that's going to happen? Certainly. But we, we have to be somewhat comfortable with the fact that we make decisions to rebel against God. And God in creating us knew we would do that. We make good decisions too. And that's part of the freedom he gave us. He created Adam and Eve. One rule, don't eat the tree. Did he know they would eat it? Yes. But he also knew that he would redeem Adam. And Adam would have a relationship with him. So he also knew that Adam would enjoy the experience with Eve. And they would have children. And the world would be blessed. So in spite of the fact that he knew what Adam would do, he created Adam. So... You know, I'm not, I'm not a big believer that every decision I make, God had orchestrated, because that would remove freedom. Scripture simply says, in grace, he chose me to be saved. And then I'm comfortable with that. Yeah, I think, uh, going back to the issue of freedom and predestination, uh, it, I think it's in Revelation that John has the picture of Jesus knocking at the door. Yeah. And Jesus knocks at everybody's door. Yeah. But... He doesn't open the door for us. Yeah. And there's uh, no doorknob on his side, just a doorknob on the other yeah, side. Yeah, uh, hang on a second now. Yeah. Jesus knocking at the door is not for the individual, it's for that church. So go back and read that passage. He's talking about the church, the Laodicea, neither hot nor cold. I'm knocking at the door, and knocking at the door is nothing to do with doorknobs and which way it opens. The door is, I am giving you an opportunity to fix this. Period. Don't take the analogy past that. It's not about do I owe, you know, whoever opens the door will come in and sup with me. The idea simply is he is giving that church the chance to get it right, take advantage of it. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of debate on whether that does. Some say it does, and I just simply say there's a whole lot of other passages I can use to accomplish the same thing instead of that one. So I know we're cutting in on your rehearsal time, right, music boy? Yeah, that's what I call him all the time. Because the music man is back there. So that makes him the music boy. Any other questions? I said man. I didn't say the old man. All right, we'll see you all later. By the way, the doctrine of predestination is no reason to ever break fellowship with another Christian. So don't do that. <laughs>